0: Okay, maybe I should have said it in that tone. We have connection. All right. Now, we are an independent radio station, self hosted, self produced. Once in a while, there are technical issues. But what a show for you today as we bring in. former Washington Post reporter. I'm not going to name who. I'm going to give it a few minutes, and then I'm going to name that person for you. But it is an incredible treat for you to receive. In about six minutes' time, we will be hosting this individual. Now, last week, we aired from Art Basel. And those of you local to Miami know what a production that is. Basel, Switzerland. Yes, home to the Bank of International Settlements. Is it any coincidence that a major art show internationally comes from that same city? I think not. Miami happens to be of the three locations, Hong Kong being the other, the largest show for Art Basel. And the number that I've heard in the past is that it attracts about 100,000 extra people to the Miami area. And most concentrated in Wynwood and Miami Beach. No, oh, I thank you for joining the weekly edition, and it's always five o'clock, always on Wednesday. Discussions of truth here on Winwood Radio. Follow me; I'm the host, Ian Trottier. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. Both handles: i a n t r o t t i e r Jefferson Morley. He's a DC-based author and veteran journalist of over 30 years. His novelistic nonfiction books explore untold chapters in the history of the American nation. He applied his investigative reporting talents to a 15-year career at the Washington Post. I say 30. Morley combines granular detail with storytelling verb to capture unknown realities of subjects as disparate as the Central Intelligence Agency. A la, Ray McCovern, Ian! If you caught that episode, and if you haven't, go into my archive. It's on iTunes or Mixcloud. Ian, quote, it's no longer about a military-industrial complex. And that came from the very mouths of one Dwight Eisenhower as he departed the Oval Office. Yes, a very real machine the military-industrial complex, real enough that I do what I do because I believe that it has part in the very Zika virus threat that came ashore in Miami about two years ago. Ray said... Yes, no, Ian, it's no longer about a military-industrial complex. It's about a military-industrial media complex. How can media shape your way of thinking and viewing the world, whether you realize it or not they have? Whether it's in the movies you're watching, the video games you're allowing your children to play or you're playing, or the nightly news you watch, sitcoms. Yes, it's all controlled today by about six different companies. Why is that alarming? Because if you go to impeachmassmedia.com, impeachmassmedia.com, you will find a graph that shows that in the past four decades, the ownership of all media, major, media, major media sources that we have, CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, those have gone from about... 80 different people, large companies, not people per se, down to about six in 2018. Why is that alarming? Because that is a manipulation that is giving power to a very few, a lot the Federal Reserve. Who is the Federal Reserve? They're nothing fed their role. But yet, don't you pay taxes to a federal government that you vote to elect officials for? Yet, those controlling the money supply is not the U.S. Treasury. It is the Federal Reserve. If you take out a dollar bill, it's just plain as It's, inside, it's in plain sight. It's a plain as day. It says Federal Reserve note right on the dollar bill there. It's a Federal Reserve note. That means a debt to the Federal Reserve. Who is the Federal Reserve? They never audited. You call the station right now. Call me right now. Okay, we're fine. Don't do it, but you can if you want. Drop me an email. And tell me one person that's in the Federal Reserve. That's not public information. Yet isn't the U.S. government a public institution? Okay, so issues, issues, military-industrial complex. Let's get back to Jefferson Morley. He attacks and he looks into subjects like the Central Intelligence Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency. And that's why I brought up a past guest on this program, Ray McGovern, who spent 30 years in D.C., personally handing George Bush, 41, who just died, personally handing him daily briefings. Join this program. And he says, Ian, it's no longer about a military industrial complex. It's about a military industrial media complex. Oh, bing, bing, bing. Trump, hello, fake news. Ah, fake news. Deep state? Never heard Obama talk about any of this stuff. Never heard Clinton talk about any of this stuff. And if he did, I'd send me the sound clip. Why is Trump talking about it? By the way, his, uh, his main attorney just got sentenced to three years in prison. Cowan, is it? Michael Cowan? May have that name wrong. If I do, I apologize. I make mistakes. So, anyway, Morley's writings have appeared in such publications as Salon, The Atlantic, and now The Intercept. Morley is one of the world's most credible authorities on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. He's the editor of the blog JFK Facts. He sued the CIA for certain records related to the Kennedy assassination in 2003. Fourteen years later, his lawsuit, more levers, the CIA, is still active. How's that interesting? Next week, we'll bring on guest Scott Bennett, former U.S. Army Special Operations Officer. Slash whistleblower. Shell game is the name of his book slash report to Congress. Psychological warfare. Okay. It gets back into, oh, how are we as Americans brainwashed? Okay. Let's say it in more, let's say it in a different way. A different, how are we trained to think? A la Charlotte Isabet. I always go back to Charlotte Isabet. Listen to that episode. Charlotte Isabet. The deliberate dumbing down of America. She was fired by Ronald Reagan for opposing a program that aimed to give, and which does now, more authority in the way your children are taught in schools to the state. She opposed that. She felt that parents should have more say. Those are very layman's terms. Okay. Scott Bennett joins us next week. And last week, Andy Lee Roth project-censored vice president. He joined us from our tent there on Miami Beach, Art Basel. And January 2nd, we'll be opening the new year with Alex Duvall. He'll talk about something called Operation Starvation. Yes, mass starvations that are deliberately organized and engineered by governments. And J.P. Lindstrath who will bring back on uh, momentarily. Well, not in moments, but uh, 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 so to speak. We will bring JP back on very soon. Uh, speaks and spoke about uh, 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 Yemen. Okay? And the genocide, the genocide that is happening is that better? The genocide that is happening in, in, in Yemen. Uh, almost three quarters of the population is uh, facing starvation. In Yemen, and if that doesn't strike a chord of sympathy for you, it should. Okay, so that's on Slate for us um, coming up uh, in February. We'll be receiving Mark Shaw, who's been on the program before. Uh, he's got an agreement with the Doubt. Uh, well, I'm not going to go into that. But, well, yeah, the Doubt Brothers uh, for his book. Uh, they produced a uh, film for Paramount um, on uh, the Waco. Uh, issue And uh, what, what, what Mark Shaw has uh, written about is the Dorothy Kilgallen angle to JFK. So I will be right back with Jefferson Morley. Thanks for tuning in to Winwood Radio. This is every Wednesday, Discussions of Truth, 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram, I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Patreon the website, Namesake, I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. And, and, and again, donate 50 bucks. To impeach mass media, get a free shirt. And they're high-quality cotton, very comfortable shirts. People love these shirts. I'll be right back with Jefferson.
1: Buy it, use it, break it, fix it, trash it, change it, mail, upgrade it, charge it, point it, zoom it, press it, snap it, work it, quick, erase it, write it, get it, paste it, save it, load it, check it, quick, rewrite it, plug like it, play it, burn it, it, track it, drop it, zip, and zip it, lock it, fill it, curl it, find it, view it, code it, jump, lock it, surf it, scroll it, pose it, click it, cross it, crack it, switch, update it, name it, read it, tune it, print it, scan it, send it, fax, rename it, touch it, ring it, play it, watch it, turn it, leave it,
0: whiplash whiplash we have online with us former washington post reporter and current investigative journalist for the intercept jefferson morley jefferson do you hear me yes i do jefferson how's your day going for you today
2: uh, it's been pretty good, um, you know. A lot of news happening in Washington, so it's like uh, drinking out of a fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> and, is is are you capturing at least a quarter of it? Uh, uh, if if I'm if I'm at five percent, I'm lucky. Uh, yeah, uh Jefferson, let's kind of, ch- of news is unbelievable.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, this is this is. Um... You know look this is a great time to be an American and 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 it's always been a good time to be American but this is this is the time uh, for Americans to really stand up and look at what's going on in their government do you agree with that
2: I do I do we we're, we we're, we we're, we're at a culminating moment um and uh, you know a lot a lot's going to be shaken out in the in the coming months so it's, so yeah. Yeah, it's time for it's time for people to do their best yeah,
0: I mean, I, I say, I say, it's a great time to be American. What I, what I, I, should probably rephrase that. It's almost a scary time to be an American, and 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 and, and, and that's certainly the message that I try to convey. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, Jefferson. Um, uh, give us a little bit of background, and then, uh, and then we'll jump into uh, we'll jump into some of the meat meat of what you're you're doing.
2: So I've been a reporter in Washington for the last thirty five years. Uh, covered a wide variety of topics, politics. Uh, my specialty uh, is tends to be national security, central intelligence agency. Um, I've written a couple of books about the CIA. Our Man in Mexico is the story of the CIA's top man in Mexico in the 1960s. Uh, the Ghost, uh, my latest book, is a biography of James Angleton. The counterintelligence chief for the CIA, very powerful figure from 1954 to 1974, very involved in the CIA scandals of the 1970s, Watergate. So, you know, so that's kind of the area that I really have focused on is origins of the CIA, key personalities, and what, is that, what does that mean for us today. I've also covered, you know, the Iran Contra scandal. Um, in the 1980s, uh, uh, which had a CIA component to it, um, so I've done a lot of a lot of different things in my career. That tends to be my focus. That's excellent.
0: So we had on a program, uh, Stephen Kinzer. Are you familiar with Stephen? Yeah, sure. So sure. Stephen Stephen joined to the program and, and 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 talked about his book. Uh, it, it basically paints this picture of Mark Twain being uh, incredibly opposed to the Teddy Roosevelt uh, uh, movement to get involved in the Spanish American War.
2: And yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, Stephen's work is very interesting because he takes us back to the roots of the, um, you know, I mean, America is a peculiar country. We we were, we were founded as an anti-imperial country. And so we never wanted to admit that we had an empire. And in the ways of traditional empire, we did not have an empire, but, but we did. And, and, and Stephen identifies that and talks about how that, that system that grew into the world that we have today actually originated back in, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. So I, to me, I look at his work as kind of the precursor to my work.
0: Yeah, that's excellent, and and you, you talk about well in a previous book of yours, you talk about Winston Scott, uh, and certainly you're you you you're familiar with uh, is it was it uh, Winfield Scott. Uh, you, you get that right. He, he's the general that, that uh, basically followed the same path um, that the Spanish conquistadors followed from Veracruz into um, Teotihuacan, the city of, of Mexico, and they stormed uh, the halls of Montezuma. Are you familiar with that that story?
2: Yeah, yeah. So Winfield Scott, who that was, you're talking about 18, uh, 1846, you know, and then 14 years later, he would lead, he would be the first union general. So in his own time, he was a, you know, he was a legendary, he was a big man in, in you know, in, in U.S. history and U.S. politics. And Winfield Scott, um, the you know, Winston Scott, who I wrote about, would, you know, pretended to be a descendant of that Winfield. Oh, really? Scott, which he wasn't really. I mean, I found oh. no evidence that he was. <laughs> I think he was just, you know, if you were living in Mexico, it was a good story to tell, you know. Yeah, and yeah. so, uh so but but the but the point being that um you know the, what we're really talking about here is the history of the American Empire, if you will, you know, or a history of American power in the western hemisphere, so that's what my books, Our Man in Mexico and the Ghost, you know try to bring out is how was power really exercised through the Central Intelligence Agency, you know from after the world war after the end of World War II up to the present
0: yeah excellent okay so take us down that road of uh, describing to listeners exactly what this hidden history of the cia is and regarding uh, winston scott and and, and, I, and I definitely want to get into the ghosts as well uh, but i kind of want to build build up here a little bit
2: um so you know what the the story of win scott um win scott was a former fbi agent joined the CIA upon its creation. He was a very talented intelligence officer, rose rapidly. He was the first, he was the CIA's first station chief in London um, in after when the CIA was created. And that was the CIA's most important station in the world at that time. So he was a, you know, he was a founding personality of the CIA. And he moved on to Mexico City in 1956. And from 19. 19- 56 to 1969 he was the CIA station chief there and i mean 13 years in place he was a power behind the throne in mexico for those 13 years he had he had three mexican presidents on the CIA payroll i mean the wow. man the man had the country wired Wow. One time, somebody said, "Oh, you know, we got to get rid of Win Scott. You know, he's like, uh, you know, he's too big for his britches." Some ambassador said this, and it went up to LBJ in the White House, and LBJ said, "Whatever Win Scott wants, that's what we're going to do." <laughs> you know that—that's the kind of guy he was. So he was very powerful in Mexico in the nineteen sixties. Now, of course, Mexico was a very turbulent country in that time. It's a one-party dictatorship. Um, Fidel Castro and his revolution in Cuba were very popular in Mexico. Um, In Mexico, there's a lot of, you know, anti-American feeling. Uh, You know, there's tension, the history between the two countries. Going back to Winfield Scott is very, you know, tense and troubled, or it has been at times. So, so Win Scott managed to take this country that was anti-American publicly and really, you know, at least get it in concert with the american government it was quite a feat of power and it was you know the way the cia operated in the world at that time so so he's really an exemplar of how the cia you know influenced the world um, in the 1950s and 1960s
0: jefferson do do any of winston's uh, approach to uh, having two presidents on the CIA, two Mexican presidents on the CIA payroll, that's, that's quite an accomplishment if you're a spy. Um, and right. so uh, do any of his approaches, uh, to, uh, getting those types of things accomplished, uh, parallel, if you're familiar with the, the term economic hitman?
2: Um, you know, uh, y- yes, I do know, I do know this, you know, economic hitman. Um, at that time, um, the Mexican government had pretty strict rules about American investment. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And because of nationalist feeling in Mexico, for example, you know, there was no question of privatizing the Mexican oil company or allowing, um, you know, uh, Mexican-American businesses to dominate Mexican markets. Yeah. But... The American businesses that were there were, you know, were definitely protected by the Mexican government, um, and you know, were able to do business, you know, without interference. So it was not when Scott's time uh, as station chief was not one of those times where they were trying to coerce Mexico into any particular economic arrangement. At that time, what they wanted was a security arrangement. They wanted to keep communists out of Latin America. They didn't want revolutionary groups operating out of Mexico City. Um, So there was this dance between the Mexicans and the Americans. Uh And so when Scott got a good security agreement, the Mexican security forces were at the disposal of the CIA and FBI. You know, there were very good relations there. That did not translate into this. We want some economic arrangements there. That was not on in the in the cards in the nineteen sixties. So, as an American s-
0: a- a viewpoint, and 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 however, Mexico, I, I've actually I actually love that country. I've, i lived lived there for for, for a little while, and uh, I, uh-huh. I, it's just a wonderful place. But but yeah. from American viewpoint, Mexico is from the New World, and and, and you know. We, we are talking about kind of some of the settlers that built this nation that we've inherited and we've all been born right. into um, yeah. you know that's that's leaving you know a, a major element of the Roman Empire but but Mexico, yeah, well elements uh, remnants of it I should say but 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 the but Mexico uh, is is historically uh, it's you know apart from like the Dominican Republic and Cuba it's the oldest stronghold of the new world uh, via the Spanish. So therefore for listeners to understand why, why was it important for Winston Scott to even be in Mexico? Uh,
2: Because of the cold war in uh, 1950, he went there in 1956. um, But when, when Fidel Castro took power in Cuba in 1959, he was incredibly popular across Latin America with the in the poor and the working class was like here's a guy who's you know who took power you know in the name of poor people and that was a very dangerous example and the United States wanted to contain Castro's influence and Mexico was the the, the foothold that Castro had into the western hemisphere to make arrangements with revolutionary groups now So what what Mexico did was say to Castro, you know, we'll have good relations with Cuba, but you can't send Cuban operatives into Mexico to organize revolutionary groups. And so the Cubans and the Mexicans, you know, reached a kind of bargain. And at the same time, those same Mexicans were reaching a bargain with the CIA, which is, you can come in here, we're going to cooperate with you. We'll help you against Castro. Just don't just don't force us to do it publicly, (laughs) you know, because Castro was so popular in, in Mexican public opinion, they had to be nominally rhetorically, you know, nationalistic and anti-Yankee and Uh anti-American behind the scenes. They were perfectly willing to make the deal, Uh you know, and reach whatever accommodation, you know, the Americans wanted, but publicly the Mexicans needed, you know, a, to to present a certain thing so that that set a certain limit on the relationship and and why is this a hidden history um well i think that the you know what this what the the story about win scott and the hidden history was first of all that the american influence in mexico was so large you know that that the mexican presidents were actually taking money from the cia and this is i document this in our man in mexico and you know, there's multiple records. This isn't something that's open to dispute. When the when the Spanish language edition of Our Man in Mexico came out, Nuestro Hombre in Mexico, I, I went and did 10 days of publicity in Mexico City. And, you know, people were fascinated by it. And nobody from the government came out and said, you know, morally is wrong. You know, the Mexican presidents did not take money from the CIA. So, you know, I felt very safe making these, you know, pretty strong allegations, but that's because the evidence is very clear.
0: Yeah. And, 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 and Jefferson, what set you down this road of investigation initially?
2: You know, um, I was working as a, as a reporter at the, at the Washington post about 20 years ago. And, um, a friend of mine, a lawyer called up and he said, Jeff, I got a client. You got to hear his story. It's just amazing. And that was Michael Scott, the son of Winston Scott. Winston Scott had died in 1971. And his son was had kind of made it, you know, a passion or a hobby or, you know, a personal mission to learn more about his father who had died when he was a teenager. And so Michael Scott had contacted this lawyer, and they were doing Freedom of Information Act and that that sort of thing. And so uh, he, my the lawyer, told me about Michael, and I met Michael, and it was just it was an incredible story. And the great thing about it, as a reporter, was, you know, it's very hard to penetrate the CIA to get sure. the confidence of somebody inside the CIA. Well, here was you know the son of a senior CIA officer, so and he had a lot of material and. And he was very honest about, you know, what was his family life like. And and so, you know, Michael Scott is a friend of mine to this day. The, the story was so rich. So I wrote about it for The Washington Post. And I thought, you know, this is a cool story. But, you know, like, I thought there's a book here because just the whole story is so interesting. And that proved to be the case. That's the result was Our Man in Mexico. Now, let's talk about
0: The Washington Post just, just for a moment. Why sure. is it that you... For listeners out there that are not familiar with the Intercept, um, the Intercept was basically started by um, by it was, a, it was a Green Greenwald that uh, the the uh-huh. reporter that received the information from Edward Snowden uh, right. about the NSA. So the Intercepts a, a real hot. Um, I'm going to say alt, alt news source. And you I, did you, you leave the Washington Post to to go directly to the Intercept and and and, and if no. not, yeah, go ahead.
2: No, no, no so I worked at the Washington Post from 1992 to 2007, um, for 15 years had, you know, like most newspaper people, many jobs in that period, you know, a new job every two years. Um, the last job that I have, I was the foreign news, the world news editor of Washington post.com. So, but in 2007, you know, that's when the, you know, the problems of the newspaper business began. And, there was a crunch at the paper, and I took a buyout. You know, so um, and then I went on to I was Washington editor of Salon. Um, I worked at Arms a magazine called Arms Control Today. So you know, I came to I came to write for the Intercept, and I've written a few articles for them. You know, many years later. Um, so you know, yeah. Uh, on the one hand, I was in a you know mainstream news organization, the Washington Post. On the other hand, you know, I'm writing for a cutting edge, you know, full disclosure leaks, you know, type of publication. But to me, you know, there's not that there's not that big a difference. Um, I mean, well said. I I did investigative reporting <laughs> for the Washington Post. I I do investigative reporting for the Intercept. You know, and you know that's uh, in the journalism business. You take instability as a given, and things change and organizations needs change and you get let go, you know, if you haven't been fired a half dozen times in journalism, you haven't really been in journalism as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Okay. So now let's, let's get into,
0: um, there's so many topics we can go into with you. So that's, that's wonderful. Let's get into the ghost now. Um, tell us about the ghost.
2: So, so Winston Scott was part of the founding generation of the CIA and, One of his friends, who was also part of the founding generation of the CIA, was a man named James Angleton, who was the first chief of counterintelligence for the CIA, um, starting in 1954. And Angleton became a very powerful figure in the CIA. He was never um, the director of the CIA, but he was in a what, what turned out to be sort of the second most powerful position in, in, in the agency, the counterintelligence chief from 1954 to 1974. And really what, what what the counterintelligence staff was as organized by Angleton was a CIA within the CIA. And let me just explain a little bit about that because um, sure. it's important sure. people understand. So counterintelligence... You know the intelligence function. What What do you do in intelligence? You go out and you steal the other guy's secrets. That's espionage. Theft of secrets is the definition of espionage. And the other thing you do is covert action. You do secret operations to, you know, influence and screw up or you know the enemy and stuff like that. So, you have covert operations and you have espionage. Well, then. Counterintelligence is you're sitting there, you know, you don't want the other guy, the enemy, to do that to you, right? You don't want covert operations or espionage done to you. So counterintelligence is the defensive aspect of spying. And what Angleton's genius was, was to elevate this to a position of supreme importance. And he said, look, the KGB, the Soviet intelligence service, is out there trying to do to us exactly what we're trying to do to them. They're trying to penetrate us. They're trying to influence our operation. They're trying to steal our secrets. So how do we stop that? I'm the guy who can help you stop that. And that was Angleton's calling card for 20 years. And he was a very um, impressive intellect. He was a kind of strange but charismatic character, very intense, very smart. And so, he built up this position of huge importance in the CIA between 1954 and 1974. At the same time, he was a bit crazy. He was a bit alcoholic. And so, he went down, you know, he was, um, he went down rabbit holes. He was a conspiracy theorist. He made a lot of mistakes. And by the end of his tenure, he had a lot of skeletons in his closet. And so, in 1974, in December 1974, Seymour Hersh, the investigative reporter then working for the New York Times, exposed one of Angleton's biggest operations, which was uh, called Operation Chaos, and it was a massive program to spy on the anti-war movement in the United States. Uh-huh. And it was it was a huge program. They 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 collected files on eight thousand people. Two hundred organizations. It continued from 1967 to 1973. They were looking for, you know, was the Soviet Union controlling the anti-war movement? Which it was not. I mean, they found, you know, that was not what was happening. Americans were just against the war. They weren't being controlled by some foreign power. But this operation, when it was exposed, you know, it's flatly forbidden in the CIA charter that. You know, the agency can't run operations on American soil against Americans. They had some convoluted legal argument about why it wasn't spying on Americans, which when, you know, after the story broke, just got washed away. Angleton was fired and that was the end of his reign. But he was had a long and very peculiar and strange reign as a super, you know, important figure in the CIA. I mean, his power was unchallenged. He had a staff of 200 people. He could mount operations wow. anywhere in the world. And when his career was over, the CIA, the, even the CIA itself did not know what he had done. Uh-huh. So so he was a fascinating character. And the ghost is really the story of this very remarkable character. You might not like him. You know, I think he did a lot of bad things. But he was a supremely interesting unique character, and very powerful in the American government between 1954 and 1974. Very powerful. I would say this. Angleton, Angleton was the first U.S. intelligence official to implement programs of mass surveillance. Uh-huh. And by that, I mean, you go in and you scoop up every piece of information you can possibly get. What Angleton did starting in 1958 was Um, mass surveillance of the mails, of the international mail, and he would look at every, they had an office, and they would divert every piece of mail that was going overseas or coming in from overseas, and they would look at the address and the sender, and then they had an index of people who they were looking for, and if, you know, if the sender or the return address, you know, was a certain name that was on the list, they took that letter out, They opened it, they copied it, and they filed it. And so, you know, by 19, you know, in the 1960s, Angleton was intercepting and copying 10,000 letters a year. This was mass surveillance. That kind of surveillance had never been done before in American history. Angleton was a pioneer of this. So, you know, now we have mass surveillance. You know, the NSA can read your email under certain conditions, right? Sure, that approach was pioneered by Angleton,
0: and he he was doing this because of the anti-war
2: movement. No, uh, he uh, um, he la- the mail surveillance was part of the struggle against the Soviet Union and the and the KGB. Uh, okay. He was looking for people who were engaged in espionage or you know actions on behalf of communist the KGB in the United States. So he was sifting for that kind of evidence, you know. And so, and and it should it it's worth noting with zero legal authorization. Sure, this wasn't run by you know the Attorney General or anybody. They sort of said they the CIA sort of told the Postmaster General we want to do this, and right. the Postmaster General said you know go ahead I'm not going to ask any questions. <laughs> wow okay he was the jesus of the cia
0: he did what he wanted no yeah yeah yeah. um okay so uh, uh, jefferson let's let's now let's uh, from 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 angleton and scott are you able to I i want to throw two names out there and I know okay. you're probably more familiar with the, the, the latter, but are you able to expand on the relationship that either one of those individuals had uh, with a George Bush, the
2: 41st president, or John F. Kennedy? Uh, sure. Um, Angleton um, lived in, uh, uh, Washington, in Arlington, in, in northern Virginia, Uh, for the entirety of his CIA career. And in the late 1950s, he was social friends with Senator John F. Kennedy, the junior senator from Massachusetts. Um, Angleton's wife, Cicely, had gone to Vassar. Um, Jackie Kennedy had gone to Vassar. Um, They were also friends with a man named Cord Meyer, who, like Angleton, had gone to Yale. Cord Meyer's wife Mary had gone to Vassar, so there was this social crowd in in uh, in the fifties that included these men who worked for the CIA, and there was a whole group, and and the wives were all you know Vassar graduates. Well, that's how Angleton and Kennedy came to be social friends. I don't know that they were great friends, but you know they certainly you know went to dinner parties and. You know their kids played together, uh-huh. so um, you know they were social friends. Okay,
0: all right. So that so there so there might be the the link uh, uh, to uh, to to George Bush.
2: Now to George Bush, that's a little more indirect. I, d- I don't know that Angleton ever knew Bush. I uh-huh. mean, Bush uh, Angleton went to Yale, graduated in nineteen forty-one. Bush came a- went to Yale, but much later, seven years later, nineteen forty-eight. So, I don't know that they had any um, connection. Um, Their their careers or their paths overlapped in one important way, which was, you know, I described before how Angleton was forced, was was, was fired after this scandal, you know, revealed in the New York Times by Seymour Hersh about the domestic spying. And um, Angleton was, uh, was fired by CIA director William Colby, who didn't, did not like him and, and thought that the, the things that he had been doing were not good for the agency and should be repudiated. Um, well, that stance, Colby's stance that you know Angleton's time had come and gone, um, was controversial. And it was controversial in the White House of Gerald Ford, who was president at the time who wanted to defend the cia against its critics and this was a very bad time for the cia so angleton's the exposure of angleton's operations and uh you know created a firestorm in washington you know on the order of what we're going through now with the trump russia investigation i mean this was an all-consuming presidential scandal And the White House had to respond to it and the CIA had to respond to it on a daily basis. And the the press and the TV cameras were right there. You know, this was really an intense moment. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, uh, the Ford White House and Ford's chief of staff was Donald Rumsfeld. And Uh Donald Rumsfeld's chief aide was a young man named Richard Cheney. Um, We're trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? How do we stop the damage to the CIA? And so in October of 1975, 10 months after Angleton had been fired, they fired Bill Colby. They wanted somebody more reliable, somebody less liberal in charge of the CIA, somebody who wouldn't stand up to them. And the man who they named, who Ford named CIA director was George Bush, George Bush. in 1976? So, so the the connection. I don't know that there's a personal connection between yeah. the two men. But, but George Bush was brought in as CIA director to contain and control the damage that was created by Angleton's overboard operations. Very so that's well said. The between the two men. Very, very well said. Um, out of
0: curiosity, Jefferson, sure. are, are you familiar with the works of? Uh, former Stanford uh, Hoover fellow, uh, Anthony Sutton
2: Anthony
0: Sutton? Yeah.
2: no, I don't. I don't know that name. Um,
0: he's he's looked into um he's looked into uh, playing, if you will, both sides of the Vietnam War from a banking. Uh, standpoint, and then also World War II. Pretty fascinating stuff. Um, a- Anthony Sutton. Um, he just so it just so happens that he delivered a, a speech to uh, to to, a, to, a, to a, a political convention in Miami Beach um, in 1972, and when he returned to, to Palo Alto, he was reprimanded for the information that he uh, divulged during that speech, and so that ended. Uh, well, basically set the uh, the precedent and the, the relationship that he had with Stanford and he went out went out on his own and continued publishing books um, uh, uh, under his own but I know you've done a lot of research on JFk and I'd like you to spend a few moments informing um, listeners of the most compelling and we've kind of jumped around a lot but of course, trying to tie to not, uh, tie in some some connections uh, where we see them uh, go into JFK for a few moments, Jefferson, please.
2: So, my work, my my biographies of of Winston Scott, Our Man in Mexico, and James Angleton, the Ghost, were portraits of the CIA and how it grew, and you know key personalities and the men who ran it, and both of those men were very closely knowledgeable about and involved in the events that led to Kennedy's assassination and to the investigations that followed. Um, As counterintelligence chief, Angleton had taken an interest in an obscure character named Lee Harvey Oswald at the latest November 1959 when Oswald turned up in Moscow and said he wanted to move to the Soviet Union out of sympathy to the communist cause. So for the next four years, Angleton, Angleton's staff monitored all the movements of Oswald. Wherever he went, all the reports on him were, fu- were funneled through the FBI, through the CIA, and wound up in a file in Angleton's office. And this is all... This is all documented in CIA records it's documented in my book and and in other books by scholars like John Newman and Bill Simpich. So it's not the paper trail is very clear. There was this interest in this and it's quite understandable, you know, an American soldier defects to the Soviet Union at the height of the, you know, at the height of the Cold War. Of course the CIA is going to pay close attention. It would it would be unthinkable if they didn't. Yeah. So so that gives it that gives us one lens on the JFK story. And then Winston Scott is the CIA station chief in Mexico City and in charge of the surveillance of the Cuban and Soviet diplomatic offices in Mexico City. And so when this obscure character watched by Angleton shows up in Mexico City and Uh makes contact with the Cuban and Soviet embassies. Winscott's surveillance teams are right there. You know, Winscott had an impressive surveillance system. Anybody who walked into those offices, anybody, every single person was photographed and identified. Any American, you know, they took pains to figure out who they were. So Angleton had been watching this guy for four years. He shows up in Mexico City and Winscott is watching him very closely. So between those two stories, I came to have a good sense of how this, the CIA itself understood the JFK story and understood or thought about who was Oswald and you know what kind of guy was he. And if, if you read my books, if you read *Our Man in Mexico* and *The Ghost*, you see this complementary story that's very textured and deep. You know, which is this guy was not a lone nut. You know, he was a personality of intense interest to senior, the most accomplished, the most, the smartest, the most responsible, the most detail-oriented CIA operations officers in the whole, entire organization. James Angleton and Winscott were regarded by their peers as, you know, mm-hmm. exemplars yeah. of intelligence excellence. So, you know, this guy didn't come out of did he shoot the president? That's another discussion which we can get into. But, you know, let's say he did. Let's just say he did for the purposes of avoiding argument. It was still like a catastrophic intelligence failure that, you know, the American people never knew about. Yeah. I mean, say he was a lone nut. He was a well known to a dozen top CIA officers six weeks before the assassination happened. It's a catastrophic intelligence failure by any, you know, at the at the most conservative judgment. And, you know, Americans were totally in the dark. They were told, oh, this guy came out of nowhere. A little man killed a big man. You know, get get over it. It's very sad, but get over it. You know, yeah. don't bother us by asking questions. And it was like the, the thing stunk to high hell. That's the bottom line. And my books don't argue any conspiracy theory or like that. My books show you what it looked like through the eyes of James Angleton and Winsky. What did those men think at that moment? And what they thought was well they thought two different things. Angleton never breathed a word of what he knew about Oswald and he dissembled and you know delayed and obfuscated whenever investigators came close to him. In my in my book he clearly I think he clearly perjured himself and obstructed justice in the JFK investigation when scott as i show in our man in mexico undertook his own you know kind of private investigation reviewing every piece of paper that he had ever seen or that he could get his hands on about oswald and he came to the conclusion that oswald alone had not killed the president and he wrote this in a memoir. interesting Uh uh-huh and so he wanted to publish the memoir he died suddenly and Oh, boy. James Angleton showed up at his house within 48 hours and seized the manuscript. Oh, wow. So it was like, Angleton did not want that story out. You know, it was like Winscott knew too much, and Angleton wanted to suppress that story. So I tell that story in Our Man in Mexico, and then I revisit it in The Ghost. And it's like, you see Uh this picture. It's like, they did not want to talk about what the CIA knew about the assassination. They wanted to bury the story. That's not a theory. That's like completely well documented and proven. I mean, why they wanted to do that and who killed the president, those are other questions. But the fact is, these top CIA guys blocked any real investigation of who Oswald was and what was going on with him in the weeks before the president was killed. They did not want to open that subject up. That's the story that you get in my two books. And was there a relationship with Angleton and Dulles? Oh, uh, Angleton was, um, Angleton met Alan Dulles in 1945 in Rome. Um, you know, Dulles was a kind of wily experienced Wall Street lawyer. He'd worked at the State Department. He'd, you know... He'd been all over the world. He represented major corporations. He was a major operator in U.S. intelligence during World War II. And Angleton was his bright, you know, his brilliant young protege who could, you know, had incredible contacts, um, very perceptive analytically, very, very anti-communist, very clever. And, And Angleton adopted, you know, Angle- I mean, Dulles adopted Angleton as a protege, and that was one reason why Angleton rose fast yes. and had such a powerful position in the agency. He had a patron in Allen Dulles.
0: Now, what about Scott here? So he, what was the information that he that he knew that you think he knew that 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 those above him quickly squashed, and and of course his his death. Uh, sounds uh, yeah. very suspect.
2: Yeah, I mean that's a great question. What did Win Scott know that Jim Angleton wanted to suppress? Um, because he did suppress his manuscript, and it, and it was not made public for 30 years. Um, I think that what what Scott knew was that when Oswald visited Mexico City. He was being used in some kind of intelligence operation by Angleton. Angleton knew who he was. Angleton had been following him for four years, And so I think that you know, they were watching Oswald to see, could an American get into Cuba? If an American talked to the Soviets, how would the Soviets respond? You know that sort of thing. That's what was going on. And they hadn't told Scott about it at the time. Uh-. Uh-huh. And so then after the assassination, the guy who Scott like was kind of in the dark about killed the president. Scott was like, whoa, what's going on? That's why he did his own investigation. And he realized that the the story that the CIA had fed to the Warren Commission was we didn't we didn't know that Oswald was in contact with the Cubans in Mexico City we just, we didn't we didn't figure that out until after the assassination. This is the story that the CIA told the Warren Commission and it's in the Warren Commission's report. We just didn't know, you know well, when Scott knew that that story was a cover story he knew that that was a lie because he had been present. you know they had photographs of oswald they had tape recordings of oswald they you know they had that they had these places wired they weren't like in the dark about some american who wandered through there and so when scott i think he took it personally it was like i did not screw up you know this american showed up and i reported on him and i said everything i knew about him you know like somebody else might have a problem with that but i don't have a problem with that when scott knew what was coming he was not. He was a very smart man. He knew that the investigation of JFK was going to be reopened, and so he was playing defense. It was like other people might have a problem with reporting on wins on this character Lee Harvey Oswald, but I did my job, and that was the that was the really the core of it. and And that's why Angleton seized his his memoir and took the manuscript, you know, because. They did not want this story out that they really knew who Oswald was long before he got to Dallas. And, you know, at the highest levels, at the James Angleton level, they were thinking and talking about Oswald six weeks before Kennedy was killed. That was the story that Winscott knew, and that was the story that the CIA Uh, could not afford to let out.
0: It's it's almost like a a massive fail that can parallel – uh the 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 failure of 911 if you, if you will but let's yeah. let's yeah. now go
1: um
0: jefferson let's let's go into why this is relevant for americans today i mean we're we're oh talking about God. a a president that you know was liked by both parties frankly I, I i don't think there was much of a divide people seemed to love john regardless of their party affiliation—that's I, I, my perception personally—but but why, you know, a president that was that was killed so many years ago, decades and decades? Why is this relevant for Americans today? It, it, it's almost a—it's almost this continuous love affair that Americans have with a beloved president and character and face of their nation that is gone frankly unsolved by most people's opinions um, but how does this correlate why is this important for americans to continue digging and what does this mean for the term that's become so common called the deep state
2: yeah it's a good question i mean you know you were, we're talking about something that happened 55 years ago right you know the right, Beatles right. were you know, kids. The Beatles were just coming to America at the, at that time. you know You're talking about really you know, ancient history for most Americans. I mean, I remember it barely. I was in kindergarten you know at the time. But you know, I'm like the I'm like the the, the youngest possible person who can remember anything about Kennedy, right? Yeah So the mem- you know the memory is fading. But the story is so remarkable and tragic. And I think that I think that what people don't realize now is, you know, Kennedy's death really was a turning point. Kennedy was trying to take the country in a different direction, which was extraordinarily difficult and dangerous at the time. And he paid for it with his life. But he was really trying to end the Cold War and end the militarization of US, you know, the US dealings with the world. He was trying to extract, he didn't want to invade Cuba, he he didn't want to get involved in Vietnam. And, but, you know, there were powerful forces against him, and he was resisting them. And he was resisting them with, you know, all the stuff that politicians do, you know, fake words, you know, false assurances, you know, foot dragging. And, but, but he really was for, you know, he, he had what he said was a strategy for peace. And when he was killed, the strategy for peace was killed. And we, you know, we went in a different direction than if John F. Kennedy had survived. We went into Vietnam. That was not preordained. Kennedy did not want to do that. You know, uh, we we maintained 50 years of hostility with Cuba and we supported fascist regimes in Latin America for from, you know, from the 60s on, you know, that was not foreordained. Kennedy was ho- was trying to resist against that and, and said there was another world that was possible. So the reasons for his death, you know, they tell us something about the world we live in today.
0: Yeah. And, 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 and what is that? Does there's does, does a term that Eisenhower, the the president that preceded JFK you know he he cautioned and, and and I opened up the program by mentioning it he cautioned uh, he cautioned Americans about this term military-industrial
2: complex now Raina, yeah, no, no and, and, yeah. and, and 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 you know and, and, and this is the issue I mean Eisenhower a, a you know really a conservative Republican Kennedy a liberal Democrat but you know they shared the same concern there what there was this power nexus in washington between you know the military industrial complex what eisenhower was referring to was the pentagon uh the congress and the defense contractors and you know he said you know they had an unwarranted influence on the 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 politics of the country and americans should be on guard against that kennedy had the same concern and when kennedy was killed and there was, you know, there was a bogus investigation. There was a superficial investigation. There was a compromised investigation. You know, uh, we really lost something. And 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 we really lost the possibility of addressing or containing or dismantling that military industrial complex. So, you know, that was really a, a time when there was something that was possible in American history. And we haven't been close to that again. And we've lived, you know, as a result... We lived in a very militarized yeah. country, you know, and look at today, you know, we're, we're fighting wars in four, four or five countries. Most people don't even know these are undeclared wars. No, the Congress has never voted and said, you know, let's go bomb Yemen or let's go bomb Somalia. You know, the people have never been involved yeah. in the decisions about these wars. Well, how is that? How, how did that come to pass? Well, if you go back and you look at the history of how it came to pass. Kennedy's assassination was the moment when you know, we lost the possibility of going down a different path and not taking that super militaristic approach that we did. So it's important to look back at it you know, for that reason, I think.
0: Incredibly well said, uh, Jefferson. Very, very well said. Uh, I appreciate you, and we appreciate you joining, taking your time to, to, to join the program on Winwood Radio, Discover the Truth. Uh, would, do you have some final words, some final comments? Uh, as, as you and I opened up our segment, uh, you know, I, I kind of mentioned this is a great time to be uh, an American, but then I said it's also a scary time. Uh, what final words do you have for listeners? <laughs>
2: Well, you know, uh, I think the common denominator between the stuff that I write about and what's going on now is, you know, can the rule of law prevail, right? We have powerful secret intelligence agencies. We have people who want to abuse their powers, you know, use their powers of surveillance, propaganda. Um, And, you know, we have a president who's not inclined to obey the law or the constitution, doesn't think that it applies to him and you know uh the secret agencies are very mixed up in that so you know we really need to understand the way the system really works i guess is the way i would put it Uh, you know i have a blog now called the deep state which is not like no i'm not i'm not arguing i don't talk about the deep state in the way president trump does i think his idea of the deep state is absurd but there there are these secret agencies and they have incredible influence so i use i use the deep state as a kind of shorthand for what do these secret agencies do well you know we need them to be fully under democratic control and we need them to be more transparent so that's what i talk about in the past because that was the way to capture or correct the abuses of the past and i think that's what's going on today, and what we have to pay attention to is, you know, what is the secret side of government doing? we got to watch that carefully.
0: Well said. Jefferson, thank you for joining the program.
2: Have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, Jefferson Morley. Thank you, Ian. Please send me a, send me a link, and I'll post this. You got it. Take care, man. This is Discussion to Truth,
0: and I'm your host... Ian Hamilton, Trachier, yeah, I will return for some final comments of my own. Windward Radio.
1: format. Technologic. 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 I it, yeah. yeah. break it, crash yeah. to me. I have it yeah. i yeah. 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 Get it. Save it. Call it, find it, cue it, code yeah. it, jump and lock it Turf it, scroll it, pose it, pick it, cross it, crack it, switch it, fade it paint it, read it, it, tune it, think it, can it, send it, text me, name it, catch it, it name it, pay it Watch it, turn it, leave it, stop or mad it Buy it, use it, break it, fix it, trash it, change it, melt yeah. and grate it Charge it, point it, zoom it, price it, snap yeah. it, work it, quick it, raise it, write it, get it, paste it, save it, load it, check it, quick rewrite it, bug it, play it, burn it it, drag yeah. it, drop it, zip yeah. it, touch yeah. it, mind yeah. it, fade yeah. yeah. Watch it, turn it, leave yeah. it, stop, i at it yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I love it Metallica It just uh, I, used to, I used to As a as a kid I used to skate Skateboard Listening to Metallica They had You know These Master Puppets Kill Em All uh, Justice For All Those are the Those are the songs That we used to skate The China Banks Of San Francisco Chinatown Crossing Kearney Street There From Portsmouth Square To the Hilton Hotel The China Banks Anyway, so, discussions of truth at you every Wednesday, 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and holy smokes, Jefferson Morley. If you haven't bought his books, buy his book, buy the ghost, our man in Mexico. This dude is Doug. And if you don't dig your past, then you're not able to prepare for your future. Now. I am going to insert a recommendation as you look at the work of Winston Scott as you look at and see this is why this is why mass media is so wrong because it trains your mind and my mind and our minds to think that it's okay there's nothing else to the world than working the 9 to 5 coming home watching a football game or a basketball game. And then on Saturday, when you should be trimming your lawn or whatever, or taking your family out for ice cream, you're turning the boob tube on because there's another game going on. Okay, that's my viewpoint. I hope you disagree with that. But have you ever heard of Winston Scott? I hadn't. Okay, some of these, these characters, you need to look at this stuff. Yes, one of your, belo- one of the, this country's, whether you like it or not, one of the country's most beloved in the history of man, most beloved political figures got his head blown off. And that is still unsolved, according to many, many, many Americans. And Jefferson certainly alluded to that without actually saying it. Why was his head blown off? So let me now insert the Federal Reserve. I have entered a further description about what I do onto my website. If you go to the landing page and you scroll down to the very bottom, it'll say about, about more about Ian. If you click on that link, you follow it, it describes a 18 year history of what brought me to look into Possible issues with the Federal Reserve. Are there any possible issues with the Federal Reserve? Are there issues? Is that is it unconstitutional? Is it un American? Ask ask those questions. You you can. I'm doing it. I just did it. Okay? And believe it or not, I found a link, at least, to the Zika virus that was sprayed in Miami. I just did. It's public information. I use Google. Public domain. So, that's my insert. Next week, we bring on Scott Bennett. He's a whistleblower, and he's not a lightweight U.S. Army Special Operations Officer, 11th Psychological Operations Battalion. He received a direct commission as an officer, held a top-secret sensitive compartmentalized information TS-CSI. Security clearance and worked in the highest levels of international counterterrorism in Washington D.C. and MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida, which is a, a major hub for uh, intelligence. He's developed and managed psychological warfare theories, products, and operations for U.S. Special Operations Command, U.S. Central Command, the State Department coordinator for counterterrorism, and other government agencies. He's formally with the defense contractor, Booz Allen Hamilton. Ask questions, folks. And until next week, be awesome.